And before we begin, uh, let me just pray. Father, I thank you for the time we've had together this morning already, uh, for songs and words of thanksgiving, for prayers directed to a God who hears and who can act, for the testimony of how you've done that in the Chernusky family and Rick's life and body, and we give you thanks for these things. Lord, I come to you again now and ask for someone else. We pray, uh, Lord, for Phil and Andrea, who are heading out tomorrow evening on a trip uh, to several countries, Lord, and we're asking you to be with them, to give them safety in their traveling, uh, to give them good connections with co-workers, to encourage believers, and Lord, especially to encourage ministry uh, to, to unbelievers, Lord, in those countries uh, where, where the gospel is desperately needed. So we pray for them, Lord. Thank you for the work that they do. Thank you for their encouragement to us here and the ways that they serve here. And we just pray that you'd go before them on this trip and bring them back safely to us, I pray. And now, Lord, we turn to your word. Uh, we want to humble our hearts before this word, this text, and ask that your spirit would open our eyes and ears. In Jesus' name, amen. Acts 4, 32 to 35, and we're talking today about being a generous church. Now, I wonder if uh, this is not the best topic for Thanksgiving, or maybe for any Sunday, for a preacher to talk about giving. I don't see any pitchforks or swords out there today, so uh, hopefully I'm going to be safe. Why is it that we struggle with this topic of giving? Why is it that we find it hard to be challenged in this area? Why is it that we find it hard to be faithful? I hope that what we find in this passage will show us that it's not an issue of rules. It's not merely a matter of keeping certain commands and, and following certain financial rituals. It's absolutely a matter of the heart. So I want us to see that as we get into this passage. And the first thing I want us to see in Acts chapter 4 is represented by this word, belonging. So back in Acts chapter 4, verse 32, I guess I better find it myself, we read these words. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. That is an outstanding verse. Uh, it's, a, it's a shocking verse, and I wonder for some of us if we read that and we think, well, what, what does that possibly mean? And is it even appropriate for us in our day and age to live that way? And some of us might even say, that sounds like communism. We don't believe in communism here in Canada. The reason that we have to take note of this text is that this behavior of these early believers was fully consistent with two things. Number one, was absolutely consistent with the life and the ministry of Jesus. This is exactly the way he lived. That's why one person came to him on one occasion and said, hey, I'll follow you. And Jesus said, foxes have holes, birds have nests. I have nowhere to lay my head. Jesus had given up everything to come to this world and to be our savior. It's also consistent with the teaching of God's word. So if we read this passage and think, well, this sounds strange, and I'm not sure I should live that way, to say that is to, get, is to get out of step with our rabbi, Jesus, and it's to be out of step with the teaching of God's word. It's a heart issue. Notice the first thing we find here 
is they loved one another. The believers were one in heart and mind. In, in, in a sense, you could say the believers had this sense of belonging to one another. The reason that they could freely share with each other and hold loosely to the things that they had, the material things, was because of the deep love that they had for one another. This is where it started. It starts in the heart. So we have this sense in which the believers belonged to one another, and then we find that they, they no longer held tightly to their possessions. That's an astounding phrase here. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. So I almost want us to think, in fact, I got a little picture of the, the teeter-totter here that some of us maybe still have nightmares from our childhood about. But think of a teeter-totter, or simply a scale. And on, on the left side, put Christians, believers, the family of God, your church family, put that over on the left. And then on the right, put all of your stuff, your house, your vehicles, your, even your hobbies, your pastimes, your, your material things. And which side outweighs the other? What's happening in Acts chapter 4 is the left side of the teeter-totter, or the left side of the scale, is way heavier for these early believers than what's on the right side. You see, it's a simple matter of what they valued most. And because they valued God and Christ and their faith and the brotherhood of believers more than they valued material things, it became possible and in some cases even easy for them to let go of their belongings to care for the needs of those that they loved even more. Do you see that? So I just want us to get real personal now. I won't take a show of hands or ask you to show your teeter-totter, your scale, but, but think about that. Think of church family or brotherhood of believers on the left, all your material possessions on the right. Which way does the teeter-totter fall for you? What, what is more important to you? What do you love more? The reality is that many professing Christians sacrifice the left in order to get more on the right. That's why we don't get involved in the church. And that's why we don't find ways to serve in the church because we're so busy paying the bills, getting more money so that we can have more things. It's as really as simple as that, isn't it? And what we need is hearts of love, first for God, right? First commandment, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor. And in, in the Christian faith, love your brother Jesus taught a new commandment in John 13. As, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The old commandment was, love your neighbor as you love yourself. That's a high calling, by the way, because I've got a great deal of love for myself. But Jesus raised the bar in Christianity, and he said, now I want to give you an even better commandment, a newer commandment, a higher commandment, and that is that you need to love one another with my kind of love, the kind of love that sacrifices and lays down its own life for the sake of the other. Belonging, this was the first issue for them. What, what were they holding tightly to? What were they saying, this is mine? And the reality is that their fingers were, were loosening, their grip was loosening on material things because they'd come to see that in Jesus they had everything that they needed and their, their hands were closing tightly 
They were gripping tightly to Jesus and to the gospel and to the faith and yes, even to the brotherhood of believers. So which way does the teeter-totter fall for us? That's the first thing we see in verse 32. Then we find another word, another idea or concept here in verse 33, which tells us with great power the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. So there was this powerful testimony to a powerful event, the resurrection of Jesus. And then look further in that verse, God's grace was powerfully at work in them, so much that there were no needy persons. Do you see the connection between verse 33 into verse 34? The reason there were no needy persons, the reason that these people could be so generous and some even selling land and houses and giving it to the needy among them, the reason was, number one, the powerful testimony of the resurrection. Number two, the powerful working of the grace of God. That's why. And so if we look into our own hearts and we don't find generosity there, we find that we are still holding tightly to our things and we don't have a deep love for our brothers and sisters or our church family. It's a heart issue. And what is the heart issue we're dealing with here? It's the motivation. And the motivation that empowers us to live this kind of Christian life, number one, the resurrection of Jesus, and number two, the grace of God. The resurrection of Jesus fueled everything in the days of the early church. It it, it was so often present when the apostles preached the gospel. It was so often part of their message. Jesus rose from the dead. But it's also what fueled them in their lives of faith and sacrifice. Uh, many people in terms of apologetics, the, uh, the field of defending the Christian faith, will point to the resurrection of Jesus and we'll discuss this because people will say, oh, well, that's, that's impossible. Jesus could not have risen from the dead. What's the proof of that? So how can you prove to me? And of course, there's no, no one's ever found the bones of Jesus or, or the grave of Jesus having his body there. But one of the things that we often point to is the extreme measures and sacrifice that these early believers went to. Not just the ones who had seen Jesus alive, of course, but those who heard their message and believed it. Why were the apostles willing to be martyred for their faith? It's because they had seen Jesus alive. And see, the thing that keeps us from sacrificing and giving of ourselves and laying down our lives and letting go of material things is a lack of faith in the resurrection of Jesus. See, if you really believe in the resurrection of Jesus, it turns everything in your world upside down. The resurrection of Jesus means that that is the crucial event in all of of life and history. Sorry, I got this fly befriending me here. If, If Jesus is risen from the dead, then everything he taught is true. And it makes sense then for us to sacrifice everything, not only to believe in that message, but to tell people that message and to give up whatever we have to give up in order to to follow Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. The resurrection of Jesus was the prominent message in the early church. And the resurrection of Jesus reminds us that we too 
are going to be resurrected. In fact, that this life is not the main event. Many of us have come to realize that if the Bible is true in what it teaches about life and eternity, then what we're living in right now is a tiny, minuscule little dot. That's our life right now. In the, in the context of eternity, this life is, is a tiny dot. And that's why Jim Elliot could say what he said, that he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To sacrifice and give up in this moment, this tiny moment that we're living in right now, in order to lay up treasure for eternity, that time when we will spend forever and ever with Christ, it makes total and perfect sense. And the resurrection of Jesus means that we will have a resurrection, means that we have a future in eternity, and it means that this life is not the main event. This life is not the moment that we should live for. It's the resurrection of Jesus that motivated these early believers. How could they sell land? How could they sell a house? Those are things that tend to be so important to so many of us. And it's because they realized exactly what we read about in the book of Hebrews about Moses, that he knew there was a city to come, a city in which there would be land and houses. These believers remembered the words of Jesus and the apostles, I'm sure, taught them from, from John 14. I go to prepare a place for you and in my Father's house there are many dwelling places so I can let go of the things that are important to me in this moment to gain what I could have for all eternity. Notice what Paul wrote when he taught about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15.32. This is hypothetical, of course. He says, if the dead are not raised, or in other words, if there's no resurrection, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Of course, that same passage tells us that Christ has indeed risen from the dead, which means the statement is not true and it's not applicable to us. And yet, it troubles me how easily I fall into this description of life. And isn't it sad to think that this description of life might be more true of many of us who profess faith, that when we look at each other's lives, we see us eating and drinking, or in other words, pursuing temporal pleasure, things that I can have here and now at the expense of sacrificing for eternity, and what it looks like is we don't believe in the resurrection by the way that we're living now. To believe in the resurrection is to say, I can go without food. I can go without my wants and my material things that I wanted. I can go without those things because there's a day coming when I will gain far more if I sacrifice them now. The resurrection of Christ motivated these believers to generosity. And then this beautiful, beautiful phrase at the end of verse 33. Look at it again. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Think with me about what this might mean. The grace of God was powerfully at work in them. There's a couple of things I think that this could mean. The first is that it might just simply mean that God was at work among them. We, we saw last week about the Holy Spirit coming and empowering the church and this supernatural life that we are to live as believers. 
So maybe it just simply means that God, the Holy Spirit, was at work among them. And the word grace simply means gift. And so God's presence, God's power was at work among them. And I would argue that's true. But if we don't see that kind of work happening among us, we'd have to ask the question, why not? Well, how come we don't get to see this kind of power transforming the lives of believers, causing them to let go of the things they used to hold on to and live lives of generosity and sacrifice? Has the Holy Spirit been limited to us? Is God not choosing to work that way among us? And we'd have to say, no, he, he certainly can, he certainly would. Or is it a second thing? And the second possibility I see in this phrase is that these believers were so fixated, meditating on, wowed by God's grace to them, that that realization, that, that understanding of God's grace and goodness to them so moved them that it transformed their lives. And I would say I think both of those answers are likely true. If we want to see our lives transformed, we need to do what the Bible tells us to do, and that is that we should meditate on God's word. And many great believers over the centuries have come to discover that the more they meditate on Jesus and on the good news, you say, well, why would I meditate on the good news? I've already received the good news. I've already been saved. Why would I spend time meditating on that? Because it'll change your life. The more we sing, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me, and actually believe it, and actually meditate on the truth of it, that I am completely unworthy in myself to be a recipient of the grace of God. But he loved me so much as, as, as my heavenly father. He sent his own son who was willing to come and give his life as the adoption fee so that God could bring me into his family. All of this is too much to believe, but it is true. And the more we think about that, the more we're transformed. I would argue that the reason we struggle at times to forgive, for example, is because we just have not spent enough time thinking about how God has forgiven us. The more we think about God's amazing forgiveness of us, the easier it becomes for us to forgive others who've hurt us. And I think this is why we struggle with giving because we just don't spend enough time thinking about the tremendous grace of Jesus and all that he gave up for us. How crazy is it to rest our faith on this truth that I'm saved because Jesus became poor so that I could be rich in him. Oh, but by the way, don't ask me for anything. What's mine is mine. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Generous lives flow from people who are absolutely amazed at the gospel. And so this phrase has become very popular uh, and used by many writers and many preachers nowadays, and that is that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day. This is a healthy practice. This is how we overcome sin. This is how we learn to forgive others. This is how we walk in lives of praise and worship. And this is how we learn to be generous by preaching the gospel to ourselves every day, yeah. By the way, folks, that's why we do communion regularly. Uh, it'll be great 
if we can get back to doing that even weekly because communion is a way of preaching the gospel to ourselves as a church family and reminding ourselves that our identity is in Christ, that we were filthy, unworthy sinners, but Jesus gave his life, poured out his blood so that we can be wiped clean and brought fully, wholly into the family of God. Do this, do this. This is why we we need to spend time in God's word and time in prayer and time in meditation. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Finally, this word, identity. Verse 34 says, from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. I find this astounding because I know for myself, I'll speak, speak of myself here, these types of possessions are things that tend to identify us. We, we take pictures of ourselves and our family, and our family's done this, outside of our home. Or we, we buy a house and we take a picture in front of the house with the sold sign. I mean, it is a big deal. It's, it's a tremendous gift for any of us to own property, to own land, and, and, and realize that that puts us into a very small percentage of the world population that we actually own our own homes and own our own land. I, know, I realize not everyone here does. But those of us who do, it, it is easy for us to find our identity there. Or for some of us, it's our vehicle, it's, our, it's, it's my pickup truck. It's the, it's the car I drive, it's the clothes that I wear that tend to identify me. And whatever it is for you, this is what I find astounding about this verse, that these believers had come to understand that because the gospel was true, because they believed in Christ, that their identity was no longer tied to anything in this world. Their identity was wholly tied to Jesus. This is why we struggle so often with sin or with other struggles and even emotional struggles in life. It's often because we are placing our identity in something other than Jesus. And this is why some of us, me included, sometimes struggle to be generous and to give because that thing that we ought to give gives me that sense of identity and worth and so I grip it tightly and I hold on to it and I can't give it away because I find my identity there. These believers had that overcome in their lives. Jesus was their identity. I wonder how those three things speak to you. And they certainly are challenging my own heart. I want us to consider four areas where we as believers are called by the Bible to be generous. The first one we've seen in this passage, and that is that we should be generous with the family of believers. We live in a different time than these early believers did, where we have social programs, and, and, uh, and for the most part, we tend to be very wealthy uh, in comparison to the world around us. But there are times when there's a need that arises within our church family, and we can generously meet that need. Scripture says, share with the Lord's people who are in need. Secondly, is the ministry of the church. We should all give to the expenses of the ministry of the church. First Timothy 5 says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. It's talking here about those who serve the church, who provide leadership for the church. And in a church like Wallenstein, we have multiple staff members, some who um, 
are providing general leadership, some who are teaching your kids. And so we share in that. Don't muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. So whose responsibility is that? All of us. All of us who send a child to the nursery. All of us who sit under the preaching of God's word. All of us who send a child to Sunday school. All of us who participate in this church. All of us who come and sit in these clean pews and sit under this electricity and these lights. All of us participate. That, that's just, that just makes sense. It's not only scriptural, it's very practical. That we don't um, presume upon others by coming and being part of a church when I have the resources to help with these things and assume someone else will take care of it. That, that doesn't make any sense. We all should participate as able to the ministry of the church. And then scripture teaches that we should give to the poor of society. Jesus lived this and he taught this. Do not be afraid, little flock, Jesus said. Your father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. That's that eternal thing we talked about. Sell your possessions, give to the poor. Provide purses for yourselves that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. Giving to the poor of society is part of being a follower of Jesus. When Peter and Paul had discussions, you can read about this, I believe, in Galatians, about who was going to go to the Gentiles and who's going to go to the Jews, the thing they agreed upon was, with great joy, let's not forget the poor. The poor and sharing with and giving to the poor was a crucial component of preaching the gospel. Do you know? So they didn't go into a city that had never heard the gospel before and preach the gospel and then leave. They preached the gospel while they looked for opportunities to care for the poor of that city. Why? Because that gave uh, evidence to the reality of the gospel of the gospel in a tangible way. We ought to do the same. We have ministries today, in fact, Lifeline, uh, that helped us with this meal packing thing, is a ministry that we can trust. It's a ministry that provides for the poor of the world, while at the same time providing the gospel. And there's many Christian ministries um, like that. Some of you know of Compassion, Compassion International which provides child sponsorship for children in very poor countries around the world. And none of the children who are sponsored ever go without hearing the gospel as part of the ministry to them. So for 45 bucks a month, you can sponsor a child who's both uh, getting an education and getting clothed and getting fed and hearing the gospel of Jesus. One last category that we ought to participate in, and that is missions. Uh, locally, of course, we can participate in the work that we are doing as believers to the community around us to share the gospel with them, and then certainly in missions as well. And I don't need to say that to this church because historically you have given a great deal to missions. Why do we do that? Again, it's because of the teaching of Jesus. Here he says, in kind of a strange parable, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You know what that means? It means that we should use our worldly wealth to uh, give to the work of missions, to the work of the gospel, so that when we arrive in heaven, we will meet a whole bunch of people who said, you know what? I'm here because you gave. I'm here because you sent. And that's the teaching of Jesus. This is our discipleship path. 
and I'm just going to throw it up here again to remind us this is what it means to follow Jesus. We're on this pathway to become more like him, but we're also called to minister to other people and to bring them along this pathway. And I'll just throw this challenge out. How are we using our resources to move people towards Jesus? And let me finish with this last slide. Why we must be generous. Number one, we should be generous. We must be generous as believers to demonstrate that we worship and trust Christ alone. This is why Jesus talked about money all the time. This is why the Bible talks about money all the time. Because the way we deal with our money demonstrates whether we are violating the first of the Ten Commandments or not. Have no other gods before you. Because we all have some level of money and resources, the way we use that money demonstrates immediately and consistently and and, and in an ongoing way what we actually value and worship. So generosity is crucial for the Christian because it demonstrates that we see great worth, greatest worth, not in ourselves, not in money, not in possessions, but in Christ and his kingdom. We must be generous so that we can live like our rabbi. Jesus is calling us to follow him, be like me, do as I do. And he lived a life of extreme generosity, radical generosity. So we must be generous. We must be generous to grow our faith. Don't think for a minute that I've arrived in this area and don't think for a minute that you can't actually be a good Christian until you learn to give everything away. No, actually, generosity and practicing this is one of the ways that we grow in our faith and become more like Jesus. And finally this, we must be generous to put the gospel on display. We can't say that we believe in the gospel and we believe in Jesus. And of course, Paul, when he taught about giving, reminded the Corinthians about the, the sacrifice and the generosity of Jesus. He said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, he became poor. The Jew, through his poverty, might become rich. Generosity puts the gospel on display. And it aligns our life with the gospel that we say we believe for our salvation, generosity makes that real, makes that evident. It aligns our life with our faith. So we're going to sing in closing uh, one song, and then I'm going to come and close in prayer. This is the source of any generosity that we might muster from our lives, is, is your generosity. It's, it's what you've given that makes all of this possible and makes all of this appropriate. So Lord, just fill our hearts and minds today with wonder at the good news, the gospel of Jesus, the grace of God. Help us to have that truth working powerfully in our hearts, Lord. Lord, whatever roadblocks we've created in our own hearts and minds that keep you from working powerfully among us the way you worked among that first church, would you just, uh, by repentance and confession, Lord, may they be cleared away. Lord, would you change our hearts Give us a deep love for one another. Help us to loosen our grip on material things. Help us to show that we truly value you of greatest worth and worship. Help us to do this, Lord, as we live lives of generosity. Make this real. Make this true for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.